Please open your Bibles to John chapter 6. In a minute, we'll read together verses 22 through 59. If you could be a fly on the wall for one of Jesus' miracles, I wonder which you would choose. In John chapter 6, two of Jesus' greatest miracles and most well-known are recorded. The miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000 and then his walking on water as he meets his disciples as they go across the Sea of Galilee in the middle of the night. As secular as our culture is, we still find these references to walking on water, feeding the 5,000 that pop up. These are well-known events in Jesus' ministry. This morning's passage tells us what happens to the crowds on the day after Jesus feeds them. The other gospel writers in their accounts of Jesus feeding the 5,000 was something like they all ate and were satisfied. And then they move on to the walking on the water and then some other part of Jesus's ministry. But John includes more detail about their reaction right after the miracle and then like I said, what happens the next day. So after the miracle in John 6, 14 and 15, we read that when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And the next day, the crowds were looking for more from Jesus. When they couldn't find Jesus and his disciples in the place where he fed them, They got in boats and went across the Sea of Galilee to find him. In the passage we're looking at, we see the conversation between Jesus and these people as he taught them in the synagogue at Capernaum. As we read John's Gospel, then, we get to be the fly on the wall to Jesus explaining what his feeding miracle meant. We get to be there and hear what it meant for him to feed them miraculously. And as he explains it, he proclaims himself as the bread of life. He is the bread that has been sent down from heaven by God the Father. And he says that everyone who eats of this bread will never hunger or thirst again. So let's read the passage again, starting in John chapter 6, verse 22, and going to verse 59. If you're using one of the Bibles you got off the back table or we've given you, you can turn to page 891, and you're going to look for the little number 22, which is where we'll begin reading. Listen to God's Word. On the next day, the day after the feeding miracle, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples, they themselves got into boats and went to Capernaum to seek Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal." 
Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. This is God's word. So John lets us in to Jesus' own interpretation of his miracle. And he tells us this, this lengthy thing that all of the other gospel writers omit. So why does, he, why does he do this for us? 
If you read commentators about this passage, many of them think that John includes this teaching from Jesus because it's John's way of teaching us about the Lord's Supper. So if you read through the Gospel of John and you read about the the meal that Jesus ate with his disciples the night when he was betrayed, you don't find the, the words of institution in that account from John. And so they think, well, that's a pretty big thing to leave out. Maybe that John's trying to kind of sneak it in here at the feeding of the 5,000. And as you look through the passage, there are some interesting details that do make us think about the Lord's Supper. So we have a, a reference to Passover at the beginning of John chapter 6. We have a reference to Jesus giving thanks for the meal as he does at the Lord's Supper. We have Jesus talking about the giving of his body, his flesh, as food. So there are some real connections there. But it would be a mistake to think that this passage is all about the Lord's Supper. So the Lord's Supper doesn't exhaust all the meaning here in this passage. What John is doing here, though, is getting at something even more foundational for us than the Supper. He wants us to know something more of what it means to believe in Jesus and the way he saves us. John wants us to see that there is no life for sinners apart from feeding on Christ, apart from trusting in Christ's sacrifice to pay for our sins. John wants us to have a new way of understanding faith. J.C. Ryle put it this way, Faith in Christ's atonement unites us by the closest possible bonds to our Savior and entitles us to the highest privileges. Our souls shall find full satisfaction for all their wants in Christ. So this behind-the-scenes look at Jesus' feeding miracle is here to show us that Jesus is the true bread that we all desperately need. And this brings us back to the Lord's Supper. As one theologian put it, John 6 is not about the Lord's Supper. Rather, the Lord's Supper is about what is described in John 6. This is the very essence of the gospel. Jesus gave his life so that sinners can find life by faith in him. As you notice when we read, Jesus reveals himself as the bread of life by way of a conversation with these Jewish crowds that have followed him to the synagogue of Capernaum. And as is often the case, his conversation partners are misguided or skeptical or outright hostile to him. These conversation partners then provide us with a way to reflect on our own feeding on Jesus. And they show us some of the reasons we might not take hold of the life that Jesus offers us. And so this morning we're going to look at three obstacles that keep us from finding life in Jesus. Or three reasons why we don't feed on Jesus. Number one, we don't feed on Jesus because we seek our own kingdom. We don't feed on Jesus because we seek our own kingdom. Secondly, we don't feed on Jesus because we grumble about God's provision. We grumble about God's provision. And third, we don't feed on Jesus because we're offended by his sacrifice. We're offended by his sacrifice. Let's look at this first reason why we don't feed on Jesus. We seek our own kingdom. When these crowds come across the sea to find Jesus, his first words to them are confrontational. They ask him, when did he come? And he doesn't answer them at all. Instead, he indicts their motives for coming and seeking him. 
He says in verse 26, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So remember, after he fed them, the people had decided that Jesus must be a great prophet. Maybe the long-awaited prophet who was going to be greater than Moses. They were ready right then and there to crown him as king of Israel. Jesus says that they are not seeking him because they saw a sign. And what he means is that they've missed the fundamental point of the miracle that he performed. They certainly experienced it, right? They ate the bread and the fish that he created there. But they didn't understand where the sign was pointing. And you see their confusion as you work through the passage. So verse 27 uh, says that, um, or Jesus says to them, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on God, him God the Father has set his seal. The big emphasis there of Jesus' statement is to contrast the, the normal food that we all eat that perishes, that doesn't give eternal life. He's contrasting that kind of food with the spiritual food that Jesus gives, that God gives through Jesus. And he presents himself as Jesus, the Son of Man, on whom God the Father has set his seal. Jesus has been especially commissioned and sealed by God to be this spiritual food for, for people. But the people who hear this, they don't really receive what Jesus is saying. Instead, they kind of focus in on the wrong thing. They focus in on work. Because Jesus told them not to work for the food that perishes, but to work for the food that endures. And so they ask, what must we be doing to be doing the works of God? If you, read, if you could read Greek, you see the word work appears a bunch of times in that short little sentence. They, they're really fixated on, okay, now we have to work. What do we do to work? They don't hear at all his, his statement about feeding them and life in his name. They focus on the work. Instead of focusing on trusting in Jesus, they focus on what they can do to get the blessings that they want from God. How do we work this machine to get what we want out of it? They're looking for something they can do to get their desired outcome. They're seeking their own kingdom. They want God to work in the world in a way that lines up with their agenda. For these people, that agenda included freedom from Rome politically and probably more prosperity. I mean, just think about that. What were they going to get by declaring Jesus as king on a mountain by the Sea of Galilee? What good could come from that, right? They were trying to spark a revolution to throw off Roman oppression. They wanted him, Jesus, to give them a certain kind of kingdom, this political kingdom, this prosperity kingdom. But Jesus keeps beating the same drum. He tells them the work of God is to believe in him as the one God sent. Their work is to believe. What Jesus wants them to see is that the miraculous meal they ate was a sign pointing to himself, but they've missed it. If these Jews had been back in the Old Testament wilderness wanderings, they would have walked out of their tents and been trampling all over the manna and been looking around and saying, where's this, where's this food we're supposed to gather? They're bumping into Jesus, and they don't see him. And Jesus tells them that. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am him. I have come down from heaven. You're seeing the bread. You're seeing the thing you're looking for. What you need from God is me. 
but they still don't get it. And so they say, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus then drills down to their big problem. Look at verse 35 and 36. We get the famous, I am the bread of life statement here for the first time. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. They've seen Jesus. They ate his food, but they don't believe. That's their big problem. They're missing where the sign is pointing. They seek Jesus, but they seek Jesus to get what they want from him instead of trusting him for their salvation. Their plan is in fundamental conflict with God's plan. The Father's plan is spelled out in verse 40, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. That's the Father's will. He says it three times. This is the Father's will. This is it, that everyone should look to the Son and believe on him and have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. But that's not what they're looking for. See, they think that life is found somewhere else. They're trying to build their own kingdom. They're looking for a source of life and joy and peace somewhere besides where Jesus is giving it. Again, they probably wanted some kind of political deliverance or material prosperity. And they saw Jesus' power. That was clear to them. And they thought, well, this is the guy that can help us get what we want. If we can enlist him to our cause, we will be sure to succeed. They sought their own kingdom and they thought that Jesus was a useful ally or useful tool in helping them get it. But this made them unable to see Jesus for who he truly was. Now this kind of thing happens in our lives too. We might think that we're seeking Jesus, but really we're just trying to to use Jesus to get something that we already want. To find our own definition of life and joy and peace. One of the things that political commentators have noted is the way that our own culture is beginning to treat politics more and more like a religion. So we identify by our our political desires and leanings more than anything else, and we follow it with a passion. And we become a little like these ancient Jews who are looking to build a political kingdom. Now, many who seek a political kingdom claim to be Christians, but it becomes clear that that you want to use Christianity more like a, a plank in their political platform than a bedrock commitment. Christianity is a political strategy. It's a way to rally the masses around a cause. And again, you see folks on the left and right do this. They find it convenient to talk about their faith as a way to get people on board with their political agenda. Is that a temptation for you? Are you tempted to use Jesus for your political cause? How tragic is it to turn the bread of life into a political strategy? It's easy to see how political kingdoms come and go. How long do you have to live before you realize that gains that we win in elections are very quickly lost by the next election? Jesus would call seeking that kind of kingdom working for the food that perishes. It won't last, and it does not give life. When you seek Jesus for the sake of your own kingdom, 
You're not believing in him. You receive no benefit from him. We can seek to build all kinds of kingdoms of self. We can build our kingdoms in our families or our careers or just trying to find life and peace in the pleasures this world can offer. And we can try to recruit Jesus as a useful ally in our kingdom building. And when we do that, we deceive ourselves that we're really seeking Jesus. We need to hear Jesus' correction to the kingdom seekers here. If we come to him to enlist him for our own agenda, we've not truly seen him. If we confuse him for a powerful ally, we have no share in him. We need to admit that we don't have the wisdom or vision to know where life is truly found or what kind of kingdom brings life. One of the worst things that can happen to us is that we get everything we want in this life, but miss Jesus. And so Jesus slices through all of our anxious working for our own agenda. And he said, here is the thing you need. Believe in me. Forget your own agenda because the things you want will never satisfy you and they can't save you. But I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. As we work through this passage, just notice all the different ways Jesus talks about belief, coming to him, believing in him, feeding on him. If we're seeking our own kingdom, we're not feeding on Christ. And we're cut off from the life that is only found in him. But if we repent of our sins and trust in Jesus, we find true life. The second thing that keeps us from feeding on Jesus is that we grumble about God's provision. We grumble about God's provision. And we see this in verses 41 and 42 and then the first part of 43. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. This word grumbling is important because of all the allusions throughout this passage to Israel's wilderness wandering. When they went from Egypt to the promised land and God fed them in the wilderness with manna. If you look at the, the Greek versions of the Old Testament, we see this word grumbling used to describe Israel many times. So here's an example from Numbers chapter 11, verse 1, where the, word, the Greek word that's translated grumble in John 6 is translated complained. It says, and the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. A few verses later, we get more specifics about their grumbling. They said, we remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Do you hear how embittered they sound? They had lost all sense of God's grace in saving them. God had redeemed them and now he was keeping them alive by miraculously providing food from heaven every day. 
and yet they despised it. God's miraculous provision was a cause for bitterness and grumbling. The grumblers of John 6 reveal that the same unbelief that was there in Numbers 11 is still there among God's people. God's people are surrounded by God's life-giving, miraculous, saving mercy. And that their bitterness comes out as they grumble about Jesus. These people have no trust in God's goodness. Because of their bitter grumbling, then they're missing out on the good work that God's doing in their midst. And this comment about the Jews grumbling in John 6, 41 and 42, it, it happens right in the middle of Jesus' teaching about the bread of life. So you, if you read carefully, you'll notice bread of life occurs both in verse 35 and 48. It creates a bread of life sandwich, if you will. And the central focus of this section is seen in verses 38 through 40, where we have these repeated references to the will of God. So look in verses 38 through 40 and read again with me. Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. God's grace is centered on Jesus. God's will is that all people should come to Jesus and believe in him. They should look upon the Son and believe in him and receive eternal life. Jesus came down from heaven to accomplish this work, this saving work of God. And he wants us to not miss it. This is the will of God. Back in the wilderness, God's daily provision of manna was a way for God to teach his people to trust him as he brought them safely out of Egypt into the promised land. So each day, except for the Sabbath, they were to gather just enough for the day. Each day they were to wake up and discover again that God had kept his promise to feed them, to keep them alive. If we could just paraphrase perhaps God's work in the Old Testament in terms of John 6, we might put it this way. For this is the will of him who sent the manna, that everyone who wakes each day and eats the manna will be God's children, and he will be their God, and they will enter the promised land. Every day they were being discipled to trust him until the day that they entered their rest. By grumbling about the manna, they are grumbling and rejecting the saving work of God, the very thing, the means he was using to keep them alive until he gave them what he promised. When we grumble about Jesus... We are rejecting God's means of saving us. But surely none of us here in a church service would ever grumble about Jesus, right? I mean, I bet that's true. Most of us avoid explicitly complaining about Jesus. But even so, we can be so embittered in our souls that we have no joy or hope in what God has given us through Jesus. Jesus came to give us eternal life. He came to give eternal life to those who trust in him. He's very clear that this is God's will. Listen to D.A. Carson's explanation of eternal life. He says, this eternal life is more than unending existence. It is primarily the passing over from condemnation 
to acceptance by God. From death to life. And then it is a foretaste, the full banquet of which occurs in resurrection life. So by faith in Jesus today, we experience this, this transition, this passing from being condemned by God because of our sin to being accepted by God because of Christ's righteousness. We pass from death to life. We're delivered out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. We experience that here and now, and we experience it with a hope that one day it will be fully realized when Jesus raises us from the dead. That's eternal life. That's what Jesus came to give us. God provides forgiveness of sin and fellowship with him by faith in Jesus. Is this good news to you? Or is there a bitterness in your heart that's keeping you from finding joy and hope in this good news? Is that bitterness keeping you from feeding on the bread of life? Bitterness often shows up in our lives when things don't go the way we had planned or when people disappoint us. We're, we look around at our lives and we sound a lot like the Israelites in Numbers 11. We say, man, look at what my neighbors have. Look at how good their relationships seem. Look at all the blessings they enjoy. Why have things gone so wrong for me? And we say, now my strength is dried up. And there's nothing at all but forgiveness of sins to look at. Nothing at all but eternal life to be happy about. A bitter spirit may be a sign that you don't belong to God at all. Look at verses 44 and 45. Jesus tells these Jews who are grumbling, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So those two verses come right after Jesus says not to grumble. He's telling these Jews, your grumbling is evidence that you've never been taught by God. You have all the law, you're here in the synagogue, but you've never been taught by God. He's not drawn you to himself, and the evidence is that you're not willing to come to me. The evidence that we belong to God is faith in Christ, that we feed on him, that we come to him. Is the Lord opening your eyes to bitterness this morning? Bitterness that's keeping you from feeding on Christ. Today is the day to come to Christ. Jesus is ready to forgive you even for your bitter grumbling about the life that he's provided. Now, it might seem like a fair response to Jesus after you read those two verses, verses 44 and 45, is, well, we're grumbling because the Father hasn't drawn us. But we have to see that verses 44 and 45 go together. The Father draws and teaches. The ones who've heard and learned come to Christ. The emphasis on the Father's drawing work means that no one can presume to be right with God because of any status that we have. There's nothing in us that we can say, well, because of this, I deserve to be in good with God. None of us can earn or deserve God's grace. But the emphasis on coming to Christ means we're all responsible for whether we've come or not, for whether we've come and fed on Jesus. 
God has spoken through Jesus. We've seen the signs. Jesus has been sent from heaven as God's bread. Are we feeding on him? Jesus has sent the Father to show us God's life-giving word. He's the word of God. He explicates God for us. He's taught us. We must come to him and be saved. We can't blame God for our bitterness. Where does bitterness show up in your life? Where are you tempted to stop trying? Maybe for you it's a particularly hard relationship. They won't change and you just keep getting angry and discouraged. Maybe all the faith in Jesus in the world doesn't seem to make a difference. And you wonder, why have I ever tried at all? One way to fight bitterness is to look closely at Jesus' love for us. If anyone knows about loving, stubborn, selfish people who won't change, it is Jesus. Even though we're selfish and we're very slow to change, Jesus came to give us himself. Jesus never grumbles or grows embittered about being sent to save and love us. He doesn't get bitter about having to come to save you. It's his joy. And he'll never give up. He will never give up or fail in his loving you. He'll never get tired of you. He'll never cast you out. He says that here. All that the Father gives to me, I will never cast out. Fight bitterness by looking to the Son. Jesus shows us that we have nothing to grumble about. God's provision in Christ is exactly what we need. And he is our source of life, the only source of life. Watch out for that bitterness of the soul that keeps you from feeding on Jesus. He came to bring true life to whoever comes to him. The third reason we don't feed on Christ is that we are offended by his sacrifice. Look at verses 49 through 52. Jesus says, Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus brings up the Israel, ancient Israel's wandering in the wilderness again and how God provided manna. And this time he does it to make the case that he is better than manna. Right? The manna God gave them was only able to keep them alive physically, but Jesus is the living bread. So that if anyone eats of this bread, they will not die but live forever. And then he tells them how he gives life. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus will give his life for the life of the world. He will sacrifice his life to save sinners. He'll allow his body to be killed so that sinners can have eternal life. But the Jews can't believe that Jesus would speak of people eating his flesh. 
And Jesus' response then is to take things even a step further. He, he turns it up to 11. He says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is to drink. True drink. Now, drinking blood was even more horrific than eating flesh. And in the ritual sacrifices of Israel, when it comes to sacrificing animals, the Israelites were specifically forbidden from drinking the blood or consuming the blood. It had to be drained. So Jesus ramps up his rhetoric because of the Jews' willful ignorance of what he's talking about. Their response is basically the response of a child. I can attest to this because a child said these very things to me this morning. What, does Jesus want us to eat his flesh and blood like with a fork and knife? This is not what Christ is saying, and they know it. Because they've been there with him through this whole discourse. And he's been talking to them again and again about believing in him and trusting in him. And they're willfully ignorant of what he says. Jesus has been clear that he has come to feed people by calling them to faith in him. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. So when Jesus proclaims himself from the living bread that came down from heaven, he's clearly using eating the bread as a picture of faith. And we see that in the, in the immediate context of this eating the flesh and drinking the blood passage. In verse 47, whoever believes has eternal life. And then three verses later, verse 50, if anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. So eternal life and live forever, basically the same phrase, just kind of reversed, talking about the same reality. Eating the bread is believing. People eat the bread by trusting in Jesus. And so for the Jews to ask this question in verse 51, basically says, I've given up taking you seriously, Jesus. I'm going to throw in this crazy idea that you're calling me to actually eat your body. So Jesus ramps it up on them. And he makes it clear that what he's talking about is his death. He wants them to see that he must die in order to bring life. Jesus has to die in order to give life to eternal, uh, to give eternal life to sinners. And this is the scandal of the cross. Our sin deserves death and hell, and our forgiveness requires the death of the eternal Son of God, the Son of God incarnate in the flesh. When Jesus doubles down by taking, talking about feeding on flesh and drinking his blood, he's emphasizing the point of his death. So that added bit about the blood, is a, it's a point to say, I'm really talking about dying here. D.A. Carson explains it this way, the primary symbolic reference of blood in the Bible is not to life, but violent death. To life violently and sacrificially ended. So when Jesus talks about his blood there, it's an explicit reference to his sacrificial death. And what he's saying then is, in Jesus' sacrifice, we find true spiritual food. The 19th century Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle said that this eating is an inward and spiritual act of the heart. Whenever a man, feeling his own guilt and sinfulness, lays hold on Christ's and trusts in the atonement made for him by Christ's death, at once he eats the flesh of the Son of Man and drinks his blood. His soul feeds on Christ's sacrifice by faith, just as his body would feed on bread. 
Believing, he is said to eat. Believing, he is said to drink. And the special thing that he eats and drinks and gets benefit from is the atonement made for sins by Christ's death for him on Calvary. When we speak of the atonement made for sins, we're talking about the the payment, the sacrifice Jesus made when he paid the price our sins deserve on the cross. God's justice for sin was poured out on Christ so that we can be forgiven and justified in God's sight and have fellowship with God. But there's no hope for us if we cannot accept Jesus' death. If we hear this and we find all this talk of sin too negative, or we find it impossible to believe that Jesus' death could pay for our sin, then we are cut off from hope. We're spiritually destitute and starving. Our only hope, the only food for our souls, is to receive the forgiveness that Jesus purchased with his life when he, when he allowed his body to be broken and his blood to be poured out for sinners. This is why there's no salvation without humility. We have to relinquish the pride that would hold Jesus' sacrifice at arm's length. The Lord draws us to Christ by helping us admit that our sin really is as ugly and as damning as God says it is. The Lord draws us to see the love and mercy in Christ's humiliating death. Instead of being revolted at the shame of the crucified Messiah, instead of being offended that God counts us sinners, we see in the cross the righteousness and the love of God. Jesus gave us his flesh for our life. We feed on him by trusting in his work. And this is why the Lord's Supper is so important for the life of our church. When we take the Lord's Supper, we're declaring that the scandalous cross is our hope. The Lord's Supper is our family meal, right? You can hear sociologists talk about how important it is for families to eat together. It, it creates a culture in the family. Well, the Lord's Supper creates the culture of a church. Each time we take the supper, we are reinforcing the reality that we are those fed by the bread of life. We are those who have had our sins atoned for by Christ's blood. So the Lord's Supper should kill our pride. When we take the Lord's Supper, we're we're all outing ourselves as sinners who deserve condemnation. When you eat that piece of bread and take the cup, that's what you're saying to the whole room. I'm a sinner. I deserve to be crucified, but I hope in Jesus who took my place. This is why we always say this table is only for sinners. We don't want there to be any confusion about who we are when we come to that table. We exalt Jesus by declaring our life depends on his sacrifice, on his giving his life for us. Our fellowship with God has been secured by Jesus' perfect work. So the Lord's Supper defines us as a church because faith in Christ defines us as a church. Jesus says that whoever feeds on his flesh and drinks his blood abides in Christ and Christ in him. Isn't that who we want to be? The church where Christ abides, where we abide in Christ. Do you think this truth is easy for outsiders to see in Christ our Savior Baptist Church? 
Is it true, easy for insiders to see? Is it obvious that Jesus is the center of our fellowship? How can we grow in making it more clear to each other and to the watching world that the cross is not an offense to us? How can we grow in making it clear that we would exalt Jesus and the life that he gives through his sacrifice? How can we make it clear that he is our only hope in life and in death? Our life together, the the ins and outs of our relationships every day, should proclaim the truths that are pictured for us in the Lord's Supper. It should be clear that we believe in Christ crucified, risen, and exalted for sinners. And he is our hope. If we seek our own kingdom, we will be blind to Christ. If we grumble at God's provision in Christ, we'll be cut off from life with God. And if the cross is an offense to us, we will know nothing of eternal life in Christ. But if we feed on the flesh and blood of Christ, we have eternal life. We're no longer condemned, but we are accepted by God. We belong to him, and nothing can separate us from his love. Let's pray. Father, how good it is to feed on Christ. Yet we confess that we often are looking for other kinds of food. Because of our kingdom building or our grumbling or our our pride, we don't feed on Christ. And so we ask you for your help. Give us spiritual taste buds that will delight in the life that Jesus purchased for us. We pray that our church would grow every day, that we would be more and more marked as Christ's people because we feed on him, because we exalt his saving work. He abides in us and we in him. We want to be a church that glorifies the work of Christ where sinners can come and find life. We pray that you will make us that kind of church. In Christ's name, amen.